Rescue efforts are ongoing in Morocco after a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in the Atlas Mountains toppled buildings in Marrakesh. For Saturday, September 9th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. For 50 years, the Endangered Species Act has saved hundreds of plants and animals like the tiny key deer from extinction. We saved the key deer, and now climate change is taking that win away from us. And the king of the monsters, Godzilla, is back. A new movie by the original production company takes the atomic ray-breathing monster back to its roots. Godzilla was very much inspired by the atomic bombings of 1945 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the lingering traumas in the Japanese psyche. Plus, President Biden at the G20 announced a new corridor linking India with the Middle East and Europe. Now, news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. More than 1,300 people are dead after a powerful and rare earthquake hit Morocco. The magnitude 6.8 tumbler sent people racing from their beds into the streets as buildings toppled. The quake hit about 40 miles from the historic city of Marrakesh. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more. Marrakesh itself dates back as a city back to the 11th century. So many of the buildings there are, you know, made of these stone blocks and traditional masonry, and they're not necessarily built to withstand earthquakes. In Marrakesh itself, we know that the Kutubiya Mosque, which dates back to about the 12th century, has apparently suffered some damage. There's video of the 69-meter-high minaret of the mosque shaking and dust billowing from the top, and there's also videos showing damage to parts of the famous red walls that surround the old city, which is a UNESCO heritage site. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting that quake is the biggest to hit North Africa in 120 years. President Biden is in New Delhi attending a summit of the world's largest economies. The leaders released a statement today urging an end to the war in Ukraine. Also today, the G20 welcomed a new permanent member, the African Union. Shushmita Patak has more. The G20 consists of the European Union and 19 of the world's biggest economies. On Saturday, applause rang out as India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi welcomed the African Union, consisting of 55 states, to take its seat as a permanent member of the organization. Modi said the move would strengthen the G20 and the voice of the Global South. Under its presidency this year, India has been advocating for a more inclusive G20. In another win for the developing world, the White House has announced that President Joe Biden is leading an initiative with the G20 to expand the role of the World Bank to better assist low- and middle-income countries. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. In Brazil, a close aide to the former president has been released from jail under a plea agreement ensuring his cooperation in investigations of his ex-boss. NPR's Kerry Khan has more. Brazil's Supreme Court Saturday signed off on the cooperation deal agreed to by Mauro Sige, an active military officer and close aide of former President Jair Bolsonaro. Sige, who has been in jail since May, faces allegations regarding the illegal sale of expensive jewels gifted to Bolsonaro's administration, as well as the altering of vaccination cards for Bolsonaro and family members, allowing them to travel internationally during the pandemic. Bolsonaro was an outspoken critic of the COVID vaccine. CJ's cooperation could prove vital as authorities probe Bolsonaro's participation in those scandals and the past president's role in the January 8th storming of government buildings by hundreds of his supporters. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston.
In Dorchester, emergency medical workers are responding to a report of a man struck by lightning at Malibu Beach. For the second afternoon in a row, the area is under severe thunderstorm warnings. Parts of Norfolk, Plymouth, and Bristol counties are impacted. Utility workers have been trying to restore power to 30,000 customers after storms yesterday. The worst outages in Andover and North Andover. An investigation is underway after a Massachusetts state trooper shot and killed a man in the Berkshire County town of Hancock. The trooper responded to a 911 call this morning from a home in the town along the New York border. State police say the trooper shot and killed a man during an altercation. The Berkshire County DA's office is overseeing the investigation. The city of Cambridge is offering thousands of dollars in new incentives for the owners of multifamily homes to switch to clean energy. Decarbonization projects like switching from gas and oil heating to electric heating will be funded. Nicole McCarty is Cambridge's energy planner. Cambridge is committed to getting to zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, if not earlier, and finding ways for our buildings to make these all-electric upgrades and make them easy for building owners is, is a really important part of how we get there. He says buildings with at least five units are eligible. Grants range from 1000 to $10,000 per unit. The Arab American Comedy Festival is kicking off its national tour in Boston. Co-founder Dean Obadala says the event helps show Arabs in a positive light. People are going to learn about us and laugh at the same time. So it's a place where you can go if you want to learn a little bit more about Arabs and if you don't know much about us, it's a great place you come out and you'll learn and you'll laugh. And to me, that's the highest form of comedy. You're learning something and laughing at the same time. The festival started 20 years ago in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. In the forecast, as scattered showers and thunderstorms that have been around in parts of the area this afternoon will continue tonight, with lows dropping to around 70 tomorrow, scattered showers and chance of thunderstorms, highs around 80. Right now in Boston, it is 84 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. More than a 1,000 people, and likely many more, have been killed by a rare, powerful earthquake that struck Morocco late Friday night. The U.S. Geological Survey says the 6.8-magnitude quake lasted for several seconds in a region that lies along the fault lines of the European and African tectonic plates. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has been following the situation from France, and she joins us now. Hello, Eleanor. Hello, Nate. All right, so what's the latest? Well, you know, this earthquake took place about 11.30 Friday night. Uh, the epicenter was in the snow-capped Atlas Mountains, about 45 miles southwest of the popular tourist city of Marrakesh. And right now, rescue efforts are underway. All day in France, we've been seeing footage of, you know, cracked and collapsed buildings, cars under rubble, and people running in panic. Morocco is a big French tourist destination, and also a lot of French people live there and do business. Here is Franco-Moroccan businessman Youssef Dou interviewed on French TV. He said there were scenes of panic. People were running everywhere, including many tourists. He says he took his car out after it happened, and there were roads completely blocked with rubble. Minarets were collapsed, houses crumbled, and a lot of people were outside their houses 
who just didn't know what to do. You know, many are predicting the number of dead and injured is going to go way up from the 1,300 dead they've just announced. Wow. So you mentioned rescue efforts. What's the status of those rescue attempts? Well, it's very difficult because the most hard-hit area, the epicenter, is in the Atlas Mountains. You know, unlike this quake that recently hit Turkey, these mountains are not very densely populated, so that's good. But the traditional style of building there is rock and clay. It's not very resistant to earthquakes, so villages are very vulnerable. And right now, we are hearing talk about those impassable roads. So they're talking about rescue efforts going in by helicopter and even up steep mountain roads with donkeys. The Moroccan army has been mobilized. International assistance has been pledged from across the world. French pledged to help. You know, there are close ties between France and Morocco. Morocco was a former French colony. And France has set up a crisis center in Morocco at its embassy. Already there's one French person dead in the quake. And next door neighbor Algeria, which cut ties with Morocco two years ago, has put aside the country's bad relations and opened its airspace to aid flights. Are earthquakes common in Morocco? You know, Morocco lies on a fault line, as we said, tectonic plates, the African plate and the Europe plate. And there was a seismic um, scientist, Pascal Bernard, who spoke on French TV today, and he explained it. Here he is. He said basically the entire Atlas mountain range is an at-risk zone. He said there are fault lines that split apart slowly and irregularly once every thousand or 10,000 years, he said. So while an earthquake of this magnitude might have been a surprise on a human scale, he said it was not a surprise on a geological scale. So what kind of experience does Morocco have with earthquakes then? Right. So... um, it has an experience, um, you know, it, it had, but it, this is the biggest earthquake it has had in 100 years. Even though it's on a fault line, the last, you know, major earthquake was in 1960, 12,000 people died. But many people interviewed in Morocco said today they're evoking it now, but it had largely been forgotten. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in France. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. We want to talk now about some of the mental health challenges college students face as a new school year begins. We're going to start with one school, Yale University, before widening the conversation. And a quick warning, this story talks about suicide. A few weeks ago, Yale reached a landmark settlement in a lawsuit brought by an alumni group alleging the school discriminated against students with mental health issues. Yale University settled a lawsuit with students. According to the agreement, the university will now allow students more flexibility to take lighter course loads and to keep their health care while on medical leave. That's in addition to other policy changes. But Yale only agreed to these changes after a group of current students and alumni sued the university. The group that filed the suit, Eli's for Rachel, was formed after first-year student Rachel Shaw Rosenbaum died by suicide in March of 2021. The alumni group claimed Yale's policies at that time limited her options for care. For example, if she had taken medical leave for mental health reasons, she would have had to unenroll from the school without a guarantee of readmission. She'd have been banned from campus and also lost her student health insurance. It was very clear which policies at Yale had contributed to Rachel feeling that she wasn't able to get the help that she needed. That's Willow Sylvester, co-founder of the student group Mental Health Justice for Yale and a core member of Eli's for Rachel. According to Sylvester, there were many problems that prevented students from accessing the care they needed. 
students being on months-long waiting lists and feeling like they weren't they weren't being heard, students who felt like they were facing consequences for being honest about how their mental health was on campus and being treated more as a liability rather than someone who Yale was invested in taking care of. According to Zach Doog, Rachel's boyfriend at the time of her death, these policies were a source of fear for her. I think the school failed her. I think these policies scared her in a way that they, I mean, you think about it, like what's the point of a withdrawal policy? It's to make students feel safe. What they created for her was like a fear and like an environment kind of of fear. And that's what they did for a lot of students. After doing research and presenting demands to the Yale administration, the group filed their lawsuit in November of 2022. Just last month, the university agreed to a settlement. Under the agreement, Yale will make changes to the policies that Eli's for Rachel sought to improve. Lily Colby, who graduated from Yale in 2010, is a co-founder of the group. The settlement includes changes to the medical leave, changes to part-time as a reasonable accommodation, Students are allowed to stay on their health care. I'm thrilled that we were able to make such a big difference in such a short amount of time. In a statement, Yale's Dean Pericles Lewis said they were pleased with the outcome of the settlement and that the university over the past few years has significantly expanded resources for students seeking support. But we wanted to broaden the conversation to students at other universities or institutions around the United States. For that, we called Dr. Jesse Gold, an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Washington University in St. Louis, who specializes in the mental health of college students. And she also got her doctorate at Yale. Dr. Gold, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking about the legal settlement at Yale regarding their policies and mental health resources for students. But I'd imagine that access to mental health resources is a large issue across colleges and universities all around the U.S. Um, Is that true? Is that the case? I think when you think about access, you can kind of think of college like a microcosm of the rest of the country. So we have poor access to mental health, period. But on college campuses, there's more awareness, more conversation around it, and it's a population that's really struggling. So there's a lot of need, and that need isn't always met. I think people try and try to provide as many resources as possible, but it's often for the people who are most struggling, so the intervention side and not a lot on the prevention side. And it's definitely something that needs more resources and needs more help, but it's sometimes hard to know exactly what that is. So, I mean, we're talking about an Ivy League school here, Yale, but have you seen similar uh, pushes to change policies at different universities, different institutions, state universities, junior colleges? I think this is a common conversation. I think it's a reactive conversation, meaning that it's coming from lawsuits, it's coming from poor outcomes, and that isn't always the greatest, but it often leads to a lot of change. And I think when you see another university, especially one that is well known going through something like this, it leads you to think about your policies and leads you to change them. So I do think it is a common conversation to talk about leave, to talk about supporting students appropriately and making sure you don't also end up in the papers. What does taking a more proactive approach look like? You're saying that a lot of this is reactive. It's from a lawsuit or a settlement. How do we get ahead of the curve? 
I think it's really important that when you're thinking about leave policies in particular, that you're being flexible, that you're not saying everybody's mental health looks the same or everybody struggling with a mental illness, even the same mental illness, it looks the same and should be treated the same way. So not everybody should be removed from school. Some people might benefit from that, but some people that's removing their purpose, their identity, their social support, and sometimes even their treatment providers, right? If they're getting care at school. Mental health is something that you absolutely have to deal with on a college campus and that means you have to have these policies in place but you also have to be thinking what's the next step what's the next thing we need to be thinking about how can we make sure that people feel not just like adequately supported but completely supported you know my mom's a high school a teacher and she's talked about how hard people have struggled how many students have struggled when they've come back from the pandemic i think i've read study after study after study kind of you know highlighting that issue Is the pandemic a big cause of the spike in depression amongst college students that we've seen at different universities? I think it's important to think about the pandemic as like a compounding factor and a stressor, but not to neglect where we started. So we've always seen high rates of stress and high rates of anxiety and depression in college kids. But I think when you look at how has the pandemic changed, college changed during the pandemic. People were home, their social supports were taken away. And that really compounded a lot of existing mental illness, created new mental illness. And as a result, we're sort of seeing higher numbers and it's going to not go away magically now that the pandemic has lessened. We're going to still see that over time because these things don't just go away and a lot of mental health outcomes are long lasting. Dr. Jesse Gold is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. She specializes in the mental health of college students. Thanks for taking the time to talk to with us. Thanks for having me. And we should say if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or are in crisis, please call or text the 988-SUICIDE and CRISIS LIFELINE. Again, 988. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the International Institute of New England, welcoming and supporting refugees and immigrants in the community for more than a century. IINE.org. And the half-god of rainfall at ART, a fusion of Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality from playwright Inua Elms, now playing amrep.org. Coming to City Space on Monday, Nia Grace, owner of Boston hotspot Grace by Nia. Learn about her Seaport Supper Club and enjoy a taste from the menu after the show. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. Scattered showers and thunderstorms overnight with a low near 70 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. At the G20 summit in India, President Biden and U.S. allies outlined plans to build a rail and shipping corridor that will link India with the Mideast and Europe to foster economic growth and political cooperation. And the G20 also welcomed a new permanent member, the African Union. 
A federal judge denied former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' request to move his Georgia election interference charges into federal jurisdiction. It's the latest in an increasingly complicated effort to prosecute 19 people, including former President Donald Trump. And after months of waiting, President Biden's nominee to head the NIH gets a hearing next month. The agency has been without a permanent director since 2021. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. On the Florida Keys, there's a species of tiny deer that at their biggest are only about the size of a golden retriever. Stupid cute. <laughs> the key deer exist nowhere else, just these low-lying islands off the South Florida coast. And as recently as the 1950s, there were only about two dozen key deer left on the planet pushed nearly to extinction by poaching and growing development. Today, though, they're so common here on Big Pine Key that for residents like Omar Barrera, they're practically a part of the landscape. Let's call Julia, little Patrick. Who's lazily grazing Barrera's yard. That's uh, Emma. How'd you choose these names? From movies. <laughs> <laughs> this one's the cutest one, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. little Robert, huh? Little Robert, because... Robert De Niro. <laughs> Barrera says these deer know his schedule. They're here every evening when he gets home from work. Like our dogs. These are basically your dogs? Yeah, basically dogs. You see that? They don't run away. They're nice, man. I love them. The key deer, or toy deer, as they're sometimes called because of their miniature size, was one of the first species protected under the Endangered Species Act, which turns 50 this year. And like 99% of the other species that have gotten protection from the landmark law, the key deer has avoided extinction. 99% from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Things not only stabilized, but the deer were doing great. In fact, their, their population is probably as high now as it has been in you know, recorded history. Chris Berg with the Nature Conservancy has spent most of his life on the Florida Keys, much of it protecting wildlife like its namesake deer. We essentially, we, the conservation community, the Endangered Species Act, the state and federal wildlife management agencies, we saved the key deer. And now climate change is taking that win away from us. Climate change, sea level rise, is taking the win away. Emissions from cars and power plants and factories have raised Earth's temperature, causing ice caps to melt, oceans to rise. Already, sea levels around Florida have risen about eight inches since 1950, a trend that's only expected to accelerate in the future. And every inch of sea level rise, Berg says, is more land underwater, less habitat for the endangered species, and the 80,000-some people who call the Keys home. You know, from a sort of ecological science perspective, it's fascinating to be able to watch this occur and fast forward, but from a resident homeowner you know, conservation, trying to protect this species, it's a bummer. 
It's a huge, huge challenge. Over its 50 years, the Endangered Species Act has been very successful at stopping extinctions. Most of the plants and animals that have been listed as endangered or threatened are still around today. But that's not the only goal of the act. It also tasks federal wildlife managers with recovering endangered or threatened species like the key deer to the point where they no longer need federal protection. But how can a federal agency recover a species when its habitat, the only place it lives, is disappearing altogether? And the future of that habitat is beyond its control. The Endangered Species Act is being tested by climate change and sea level rise in particular in these low-lying island ecosystems. The same, he says, is true in other places where habitat is shrinking or transforming because of the warming world. Forests not recovering from wildfires, Arctic coastlines without ice, coral reefs, like even those around the Keys, bleached nearly lifeless in hot waters. Human-caused climate change is affecting everywhere. The threat to the Keys, though, is acute. To see it, just hop on a boat. Put a little bit closer, and we can just load on up. Christian Edelson is with the Florida Keys National Wildlife Refuge Complex, which includes the National Key Deer Refuge, one of the oldest wildlife refuges in the country. His colleague at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Nikki Colangelo, is joining us here on this boat. She works in ecological services, the part of the agency that, among other things, determines if a species should be listed or not. Yeah. You cool going to Cuba? You bet. Yeah. Let's do that. That would be fun. You guys have your passports. Eggleson and Colangelo are responsible for a huge area hundreds of islands between Florida and Cuba, with 31 federally endangered or threatened species. Everything from the Bartram's hair streak butterfly to sea turtles to the Stock Island tree snail. It's easier to see how threatened they are, Eggleson says, when you're out on the water. So if you guys are ready, we'll go a little bit faster just to uh, make good time. And you might want to hang on to your hats or turn them around. We speed across the aqua waters past house line shores, most on stilts, and make our way between islands past a pod of bottlenose dolphins to a windy patch of bathtub warm water north of Big Pine Key. It is pretty stark when you're out here. It's like we're standing on Big Pine Key and everybody's like, oh yeah, the highest elevation here is eight feet above sea level. And it's like right. one thing to hear that when you're on land and then when you're out here, it just it's like the thickness of a plate on the horizon. Yes. You know, it's like... Yeah, like you said earlier, in terms of being on the water and seeing it from the water and thinking about these small islands and imagining one foot, two feet, three feet of sea level rise. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much, yeah, because they're so low. Already, Eggleson says, shutting off the boat engine, the changes are hard to ignore. It's so in your face, and it's really obvious that it's happening. Roads are underwater. Salt is creeping upwards into soil, shrinking the island's already scarce fresh water and making it harder for some ecosystems, like Pine Rockland, favored by the key deer, to recover from wildfires and hurricanes. Different things are being eroded away, and we're watching islands disappear. There's really no way in the immediate term to stop the seas from rising. So, Eggleson, Colangelo, and really anyone you've talked to on the Keys who's worked to bring the key deer back from the brink of extinction know this presents an almost existential challenge. Here's Colangelo again. Because the options range from 
giving up and letting a species go extinct to doing absolutely everything you can and putting animals in zoos or... Or moving species like the key deer to places they don't currently live, like the mainland U.S., where they'll be able to successfully breed with other deer species, effectively making them no longer genetically unique. I mean, I don't want any species to go extinct on my watch, you know? I don't think any of us do. I mean, and but is society, where is society on that, you know? Colangelo says for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to answer some of these questions about whether to actively move plants and animals, translocating them to new environments, or banking their DNA, or just letting them go, quickly becomes an ethical question as much as it does a logistical one. And she says it needs an all-of-society response. I think we all feel it so strongly to make sure species doesn't blink out under our watch. I spoke with Martha Williams, the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I asked her, what are we supposed to do when a federally endangered or threatened species is seeing its habitat disappear due to climate change? We have always, I think despite what some people think, we have always looked at the Endangered Species Act as creatively and flexibly as we can. And so one answer, I think, is to make sure we have the flexibility to really use all the tools available to us to help that species in the habitat where it still survives. But then also, um, where can we replicate that habitat? How do we make the habitat better? Can we? And that's one of the rules, the Endangered Species Act rule proposed in the Biden administration, and that's to reintroduce a species in some place that it wasn't its historic habitat, but might be just the habitat it needs to survive into the future. So basically looking at a habitat that a species might not be in right now, but that we suspect or we project it will go to as the climate warms and the environment changes. That's right. Because what we're seeing with climate is it's moving the suitable habitat for some species. So if we're really committed to conserving, especially a species like the key deer, you know, that's ridiculously cute, (laughs) then we've got to be thinking about all the tools we can use to allow it to survive into the future. Do you think we'll be moving species? I mean, I know we talk about moving species. Is that something you see the agency doing? I'd like to not take tools off the table. And I don't see us doing it right now, but looking into the future, I'd sure like to have that possibility. So I want to step back. When you're thinking about the first 50 years, I mean, what would you call some of the biggest wins of the Endangered Species Act over the last 50 years? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that we have prevented the extinction of almost 99% of the species that were ever listed. So the success is that there are all these species that are still around. I I went to Georgia recently uh, late at night and saw loggerhead and green sea turtles come in and lay their eggs by the moonlight. And then the next morning, they didn't hatch instantaneously, but then I also saw hatchlings go out to sea. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, just to see that and experience that awe, They're around because of the Endangered Species Act. So I think there are all these 
very iconic species, but then other, you know, not iconic species that are weird and cool and interesting, but are really important for so many numbers of reasons, whether it's for medicine, pharmaceuticals, whether it's just as representative of a healthy habitat, clean air, clean water, resilience to um, climate change, to sea level rise. The fact that those species are still around, I think that's a remarkable achievement. You mentioned the 99% figure for for preventing extinction, which is remarkable, right? It is. Recovery has been a little more of an issue and a little harder to get species to the point where they no longer need federal protection. Why is that? Like, What makes recovery difficult? I think of recovery um, and actual delisting is something different, and they, the concepts get confused. If you think about, unfortunately, species get listed when they're in the emergency room or the Endangered Species Act becomes the emergency room. So by the time they need the listing, they're in a world of hurt. And so think of the continuum. Think of what it takes to get that species back on track and having long-term recovery thereafter. So it's not easy. It is a long process. It takes a lot of partners. No one does it alone. And um, then if you think of climate change, right, in the face of that, when you've got habitat fragmentation, you have sometimes illegal wildlife trafficking, you have invasive species, you have impacts of climate change, whether it's drought, whether it's sea level rise, whether it's fires, whether it's extreme heat. There are all these different things. If you think about how hard that is for people, imagine how much harder it is for these species in this web of life that depends on, you know, every little piece and can be very sensitive. When you're looking forward at the future of the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years, what do you see as being some of the biggest challenges? The threats that we see now, but just getting harder with climate change. So fire, drought, flooding, people, you know, conflict amongst people, and people need somewhere to live. You know, how how do we do that? But I also think about need. How do we make sure people are connected to nature and actually care about this? I, I think about that all the time. Like, how do we make sure the American public can connect what we're doing under the Endangered Species Act and thinking about why does that matter to them? Why does why does the Endangered Species Act matter and be key to saving us as a species, saving life on Earth? That's what we're doing. And so we, I think it's partly, you know, connecting that to everyday people to say this is why we should care. Martha Williams is the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nate. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
President Biden loves to talk about the power of infrastructure to boost the economy. And this weekend, he's doing that on the world stage. At the G20 in New Delhi, he and other world leaders announced a new corridor to link India with the Middle East and Europe. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is traveling with Biden. She joins us from New Delhi. Asma, hey. Hi there, Nate. All right, Asma, so tell us about this corridor. What is it and how will it work? Well, it is an ambitious project. It's fundamentally about boosting cooperation and connectivity across a large swath of the globe. Uh, I will say it's kind of, you know, about reading these old historic trading routes from India through Saudi Arabia onto Europe. But this is not just about laying tracks in the ground to transport goods. The White House says this is about improving digital connectivity and energy supplies across borders. Uh, There was also uh, another big infrastructure announcement here at the G20 that involves additional investment in a rail line on the African continent, running from Angola to the Democratic Republic of Congo onto Zambia. And Biden said all of these projects are hugely significant. This is a game-changing regional investment, and both of these are huge, huge steps forward. But they're far from the only ones. We're continuing to make big investments in infrastructure around the world. So, Asma, these sound like long-term projects, big goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Take a step back for us and explain why is this the focus for Biden at this international gathering? You know, in some ways, I think this goes back to China, like much of Biden's foreign policy agenda. Though I want to say there was this really symbolic moment today when, after the announcement was made, you saw India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and President Biden. They all put their hands together in this group handshake and smiled. And you know, the optics of that pose challenges. Uh, you have two partners there that don't have great track records on issues like human rights. But again, I think, you know, for Biden, a key part of this is about creating an alternative to China's massive infrastructure programs throughout the world and integrate the region. So there are a couple leaders, notably, who will not be in these group photos, the leaders of China and Russia, who both skipped this summit. Uh, And there have been questions about how effective the G20 can really be, especially with such divisions. Uh, How has the White House responded to that? You know, they've really delivered a full-throated endorsement uh, of the G20 itself. And in fact, they intend, they say, to host the G20 in 2026. Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, also pointed out that it is noteworthy that there was enough agreement here in New Delhi this year at the summit that they all could issue a joint statement, which some folks did not think was possible leading into this forum. Uh, And this is a significant milestone for India's chairmanship um, and a vote of confidence that the G20 can come together uh, to address a pressing range of issues and also to deal with hard issues that actually uh, very much divide some members from others, including, obviously, uh, Russia's brutal war against Ukraine. You know, Nate, Biden also used this forum to call for beefing up the World Bank and providing more debt relief to poorer countries. And, you know, again, I will say like much of Biden's foreign policy agenda, it seems like even this was in in ways about China, Um, even this pitch to build a better, bigger World Bank. Uh, China has this massive Belt and Road Initiative where it has poured money into development projects in Africa and Asia. And the White House has described their plan as an alternative to the coercive lending scheme that China offers. NPR's Asma Khalid in New Delhi. Thanks, Asma. My pleasure. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being here. I'm John Carpilio. An earthquake near the Moroccan city of Marrakesh has killed more than a thousand people. Follow the developing story at the start of each hour today on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. If you're new to Boston, thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. We're Boston's NPR news station. You'll find updates at the start of every hour, along with more context and nuance than alerts on your phone. Listen every day on the WBUR app. Scattered showers and thunderstorms overnight with a low down around 70 degrees and more of the same for tomorrow. Scattered showers, maybe thunderstorms, highs tomorrow around 80. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. More than 1,300 people are dead. Hundreds are missing after a powerful magnitude 6.8 earthquake hit Morocco, about 40 miles from the ancient city of Marrakesh. Rescue crews are chroming through the rubble of buildings, many of which are historic, but are having difficulty getting to mountain towns. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green says the number of people listed as missing in last month's wildfires has dropped to 66. The death toll remains at 115, but officials expect that to rise. 55 people whose remains have not been identified may account for some of those listed as missing. And in the Netherlands, thousands of climate activists blocked a highway leading to The Hague today, angry over billions of euros in government subsidies for industries that use oil, coal, and gas. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rutt. The double strikes by screenwriters and actors against major Hollywood studios have been going on for months with no end in sight. As the strikers wait for new contracts to be made, NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports on how some are getting by financially. Late night TV writer Jesse McLaren spends his days at home watching old episodes of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show on YouTube. And instead of writing jokes for Jimmy Kimmel Live, he now handcrafts snow globes, which he sells on Etsy for $299 a pop. I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this. So these are like custom snow globes of people's houses. McLaren makes the miniature houses with a small 3D printer. He hand paints each house, then glues it onto a rubber stopper, which he then stuffs into a glass globe filled with distilled water, glycerin, and snow globe flakes. And it is incredibly frustrating. If you push it a little too hard, the whole thing gets sucked into the snow globe and makes a huge mess. And this is what I'm doing instead of, I was was writing on the Oscars a few months ago, and now I'm doing this. 
With most TV and film productions shut down during the strike, nearly everyone in Hollywood has lost work, whether or not they're in one of the striking unions. Now they're hustling. Becky Portman has been giving Hebrew lessons to kids preparing for bar and bat mitzvahs. She also substitute teaches at a preschool. When the writer's strike began in May, she was furloughed as a showrunner's assistant for the Peacock series Killing It. It is scary to have this gig economy and word-of-mouth job, just trying to figure out how to make kind of an income in a temporary way, because we're not really sure how long this is going to last. Side hustles are nothing new for those trying to make it in Hollywood, says actor Michelle Allaire. She's a striking SAG-AFTRA member and the owner of the SNW Country Diner in Culver City. Actors and writers, we know how to live poor. We know how to eat noodles. We know how to, like, scale down and live on basically nothing for months. We all know how to wait tables. We all know how to scrap and do other jobs. And, you know, half the people are Uber drivers. And they, we know how to fill in the gaps. Even so, on the picket lines outside the major studios these days, you find writers and actors like Taylor Orsi and Brisa Covarrubias. I've been living in my parents' garage for the time being, you know. My spouse and I are currently on food stamps. You know, sometimes it's Cheez-Its for lunch, but it's something. We generally try not to believe in starving artists, but (laughs) one of our strategies is to truly help people learn how to manage their money. Keith McNutt is executive director of the Entertainment Community Fund's Western Region. Since the strike began, they've given more than $5 million to 2,600 film and TV workers in need of emergency financial assistance. People are coming to us now with three-day evict notices, and that's serious. You have to, like, prioritize that immediately. The fund also provides career counseling and mental health services for those anxious or depressed about supporting themselves. SAG-AFTRA announced it's extending its health care coverage for members who would otherwise lose it in October. And legislators in California have proposed a bill to extend unemployment benefits to any worker in the state who's on strike. Meanwhile, some Hollywood strikers are discovering more ways to use their talents for money. On the website Cameo, celebrities record personalized birthday greetings and other messages for people, sort of an updated version of signing autographs. Even the president of SAG-AFTRA is in on the act. Hi, Theo. It's me, Fran Drescher. Chase told me that you were feeling a little down in the dumps. Cameo CEO Stephen Galana says last month there were 137 percent more performers signing up to record videos. Some of them are actually joining for charity. Some are even putting their funds towards the SAG strike fund. Others are using this as a way to connect with their fans and not seeing this crossing the picket lines. Quite a few are still hamming it up during the strike. Actor Evan Sloan had bit parts in Fear the Walking Dead and SWAT. Now he works full-time for the company Dap Sports, where he gets paid to open packages of trading cards on a live stream. You open these things for these people, and it's pure entertainment. I'm having just as much fun. If you had told my five-year-old self that I would one day support myself opening up trading cards, I probably would have laughed in your face. I stumbled into something that fuels the inner child in me. So I feel like learning something new during this time and and honing in on a different skill has been awesome for me. Oh, my God. And now more people in Hollywood are starting their own podcasts. There's one by late-night TV host Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Seth Meyers, and the two Jimmys, Fallon and Kimmel. We are the Strike Force Five. Do you want to explain what this is? What is Strike Force 5? Hey, the reason we're doing this is because we 
are financially supporting members of our staff. There are hundreds of members of our staffs, writers, you name it. Everyone that works on a TV show is out of work right now. And so all the money we make for this show goes to them. Besides kibitzing with one another on the podcast, a few of the hosts are back on the stand-up comedy circuit. So are Kimmel's writers like Devin Field. Thanks for coming out. We are on strike. Yeah, we're very brave. That's We're Field at Comedy brave. Works in Denver in June. He performed with fellow Kimmel writer Troy Walker, who's now working on a comedy album. Walker says he can wait for the studios to come up with a fair contract. I've only been at the show for two years. I'm still in my studio apartment. I drive an Accord. It's not new. So you're not going to squeeze me, really. This is somebody who, like, was driving Postmates in the Hollywood Hills with a law degree. <laughs> Like, I'll figure it out. Another of Kimmel's writers, Jesse Joyce, is joining Walker and Field in Las Vegas next month to perform at Kimmel's Comedy Club. Joyce has also written a book about two guys connected to Abraham Lincoln's killer, John Wilkes Booth. And of course, there's Jesse McLaren and his snow globes. One globe in his collection plays the theme of the Colbert Report, where McLaren was a field associate producer. During this strike, he's also worked on some animation projects. He made an Instagram filter for a country star and wrote TikTok ideas for a rapper. I want to make jokes again, and I want snow globes to become just a weird niche hobby again. If you want to ask me how the snow globe business is. Oh, yeah. How, how is the snow globe business? It's shaky. Ah, well, there's no business like snow globe business. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. He's known to some as King of the Monsters. King of the Kaiju. And you know him for his roar. Godzilla. A new trailer for the latest entry in the Godzilla franchise. Godzilla Minus One dropped this week, and full disclosure, I am a longtime Godzilla superfan, so I am like goosebumps excited. Largely because the film is being produced by Toho, a Japanese production company that's been making Godzilla movies since the iconic monster was played by a guy in an ill-fitting rubber suit. This is the production studio's first Godzilla movie since 2016. And like the original Godzilla, the OG Godzilla, made in 1954 in black and white, the new film looks to take place in post-war Japan. And sure, you may be listening to this and thinking, okay, aren't there like dozens of Godzilla movies? Do I really need to watch a big spiny back lizard destroy Tokyo for the umpteenth time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, Godzilla, even from its earliest days, has always been more than just a collection of monster flicks. You know, the beauty of Godzilla and why Godzilla's lasted 70 years is because you can watch these films so many different ways. If you want to drink a couple beers and just watch it as two guys in rubber suits wrestling with each other, knock yourself out. But what I think is really wonderful about them is if you put them in the historical context of when they were made, almost all of the movies have some relationship to a major issue uh, convulsing Japanese or global society at the time. William Tutsui is a scholar of modern Japanese history and the author of Godzilla on My Mind, 50 Years of the King of the Monsters. When I spoke with Sutsui earlier this week, I asked him to tell me a bit about the origins of Godzilla and how the monster has always been kind of an allegory for the crises people faced in real life. Godzilla was very much born with the nuclear age. So the original film came out in Japan in 1954 uh, and was 
very much inspired by the atomic bombings of 1945 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the lingering traumas in Japanese society and in the Japanese psyche uh, about those events. Uh, but even more proximately, it was inspired uh, by uh, American H-bomb testing uh, in the South Pacific. Uh, hence the narrative in the movie that Godzilla is a dinosaur left over from the Jurassic Age that is rendered monstrous and destructive uh, by radiation. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like in some of those original movies, Godzilla was the U.S., right? Am I, am I missing that? Or is that, was that kind of the case? You know, there are a lot of metaphors you can use for Godzilla. The makers describe Godzilla as being death, as being fear incarnate. Uh, but clearly, there was this threat uh, of Godzilla being an outside force uh, that was threatening to Japan. So how has the symbolism of Godzilla evolved over the many decades that they've been putting out movies on him? Well, you know, Godzilla's been going now for uh, about 70 years. Uh, there have been 33 live-action films made in uh, Japan and the United States over that time. So needless to say, Godzilla has changed a lot. Uh, the first film in 1954 was very dark. It was very somber. Uh, it was a serious film with a political message made for adults. Over time, though, as... Uh, audiences changed, as tastes changed, and as the Japanese movie industry uh, changed, uh, Godzilla adapted. Uh, Godzilla became uh, more goofy, more funny. Uh, the movies were aimed more at kids. But in recent years, uh, the series has changed again. Uh, and we've gone back to Godzilla movies that are uh, more serious, uh, more scary, that tap in to the uh, psychological needs uh, of the time uh, and address some serious political uh, and cultural issues. Like what? Well, you know, over time, one theme uh, has been the environment and uh, man's degradation uh, of the environment. So, of course, the first movie was about the nuclear threat uh, and the way uh, that this human-created superweapon could destroy the balance of nature. Uh, but then, you know, famously, uh, a movie from 1971 called Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Uh, Imagine what would happen if the toxic sludge at the uh, bottom of Tokyo Bay rose up into a monster and attacked Tokyo. Uh, and we see those themes developing over time. You know, any fears that society has are fair game for the makers of Godzilla movies. So it seems like today, you know, I'm, I usually cover climate change, right? And there's so many global crises. There's been the pandemic. There's worsening climate disasters we're seeing all around the world. You know, basically the things we're seeing are more Godzilla-like than ever before. Um, <laughs> How do you think audiences are going to respond to Godzilla in this newest iteration, given the world that we're living in today? You know, the Godzilla films made in recent years, both in Japan and the United States, have really been tapped in to the anxieties uh, that we all face in an age of climate change. Uh, so they have directly addressed things like the earthquake, tsunami, and natural disaster that hit Japan in 2011. Wonderfully, the first legendary film from Hollywood, Godzilla, in 2014, really made a lot of nods to natural disasters, whether it was the San Francisco earthquake or Hurricane Katrina. So I'm really thrilled to see how the most recent movie uh, talks about the place we are in, a place of environmental crisis, a place post-pandemic, and uses that as a way of scaring audiences, but also making them think. So you mentioned the American-made movies. You know, Warner Brothers, I think, just did three that have come out in recent years. 
there's been a lot of criticism of those movies too, the American entries about them, you know, even and this even goes back to the Matthew Broderick version, right, 1998, about how white the movies were, about how they didn't have the kind of depth that some of the Japanese versions of Godzilla had. Where do you stand on those movies? You know, uh, I think in some ways they're very good films. And in some ways they do tap into the spirit of the original Godzilla, which was this majestic creature with a meaning, with a character, with a spirit. But, you know, I also accept the criticisms of the films. They have rewritten the origin myth uh, of the monster. So it is no longer American H-bomb testing that spawns Godzilla. Instead, these giant monsters are sort of naturally occurring beneath the surface uh, of the Earth. Uh, And to some people, I think, understandably, uh, that seems like a whitewashing of history. So let's talk about the new film. Uh, I'm assuming Godzilla fan and Godzilla fan, you got to be pretty excited about it, right? Oh my gosh, you know, uh, the trailer sent a chill down my spine. The idea of doing a prequel to the Godzilla series seems in some way almost sacrilegious given how great that original 1954 uh, movie is. And yet I'm excited to see what Toho Studios in Japan did with it. Uh, You mentioned Toho, right? Toho was the Japanese production company that originally did Godzilla. Uh, Can you you talk about the company's history with Godzilla and how it's changed? Toho uh, is one of the major uh, movie studios uh, in Japan. Uh, And originally, uh, I think Godzilla was just an attempt to capitalize on audience demand. You know, the American classic King Kong was released globally in uh, 1953. It was a huge hit in Japan. And so they just saw giant monster movies as a way to make money. Over time, though, as they realized the global popularity of this franchise, they began to recognize how important Godzilla was uh, and also how profitable Godzilla was. Uh, And this is, you know, frankly, the best time in history, I think, to be a Godzilla fan because the franchise is more active and and there's uh, more for us to consume than ever before. Okay. Godzilla fan to Godzilla fan. I got to ask, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie, got to go back, 1954, original Gojira, really uh, a classic and really uh, compelling, visceral reaction to the human suffering that's shown there and also a strong political message. I'm more of a Guy Gan kind of guy, you know? <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Maybe even Manila, Baby Godzilla, the ones that, you know, tripping over Please the Please don't tail. say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've been speaking to Bill Tsutsui, chancellor at Ottawa University in Kansas, scholar of modern Japanese history and esteemed Godzilla expert. Bill, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much. Godzilla Minus One will hit U.S. theaters in December. I'll see you there.